From the heart of the Oregon wine country, you're listening to season six of the Wine Crush podcast. Stories uncorked for wine enthusiasts around the world. Featuring winemakers from the Willamette Valley and beyond. From origin stories to terroir, here's your host, Heidi Moore. Hey, everybody. Welcome to One Crush Podcast. It is season six. We're nearing the end of the season, but this is episode 10. And we have the tale of two Daves today. We have two Daves on the show and Casey, but the two Daves. We have Dave Page, the Dave Page. And then we have a Dave and Casey with Namaste Wine as well. But we are going to start with Dave Page today because, well, he doesn't know what we're going to talk about. So we may as well start with him and get the shit show started right off the bat. So, Dave... You have quite the resume. Let's start from the beginning, because I think you said you were a Midwestern boy that didn't know anything about wine. No, I totally. I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland in a car-making family, whatever. And uh, we, you know, beer drinkers and didn't know anything about wine and was sort of in the major of the month club at Ohio State and was bailing on that and got a job in a wine shop. What is major of the month club? Uh, that's a flippant way of saying I didn't stay with any one thing for very long. <laughs> Got it. And, you know, it was always either, well, this sounds creative enough for me, but then I didn't feel like I was using the other half of my brain, or this is the science nerd in me, but I just didn't see the creativity. And when I got a job in a wine shop and you start reading about it, you read all the sciencey stuff, and then you read all the stuff that can't be science, all in the same paragraph, you know, and so that's what I got into. This was the 80s, and at the time, the American wine industry was either the 90-plus percent of the U.S. that knew zero about wine and didn't care, or the 10 percent that were totally convinced that all white wine was supposed to be super oaky Chardonnay. And all red wine was supposed to be completely opaque, dense, tannic Cabernet. And that's all the American wine industry really knew about. I don't think it's really, I mean, as a general population of the U.S., I still think a lot of people think that. Oh, you'd be, I, because I'm old and I can compare to back then, it's astoundingly different. People are so aware now that Chardonnay doesn't have to be an oak bomb. Red wine could be truly fascinating without being, you know, even Pinot Noirs. If you were in a Pinot Noir tasting 20 years ago or 30 years ago, the darkest colored Pinot Noir won the tasting. You could predict that before anybody even sniffed the glass, you know, and that's just the way people thought back then. It was just the mindset. And now you look at the 18 and the 19 vintage out of Oregon. The 18s are darker, more, you know, muscular riper tasting. They're bigger wines in most ways you'd describe, you'd call a wine bigger. The 19s, though, have a real elegance and a real delicate side that is very fascinating. And if those two vintages happened back to back 15 years ago, the 18s would have gotten all the press. The 19s would have been regarded as if they were slightly disappointing. But you look at the scores people are getting or whatever for the 19s, they seem to be getting a lot of very positive attention from the media, et cetera. And I regard that as a real turnaround in the way people are, are looking at Pinot Noir and I think wine in general. I can pour a bright, lively Chardonnay in somewhere on the East Coast in a 
small town that I don't necessarily know anything about. And people are saying, wow, this is great. This doesn't remind me of California Chardonnay at all. And they're just saying it as a big compliment. I think there's a huge difference. I mean, it's good to know. Of course, I'm newer to the wine industry and still very uneducated and unexperienced as as kind of, well, a whole. It's interesting hearing kind of the 30 years ago to modern day take from a winemaker who's kind of seen it all started, you know, was it the wine shop in Cleveland? Is Cleveland Columbus. known? Columbus. So still Ohio. Mm-hmm. So was there a big wine presence in Ohio a, or did you just walk across There was always a sliver it? of wine presence wherever you went. But it was like, you know, the that unknown little subgroup of the population. I think wine is much more generally regarded as something people are aware of now. Believe me, it was much more of an almost like an underground cult back then. But again, it was also all about the wrong stuff. It was all about trying to be trying to make the biggest wine. And I was caught up in that when I was in California in the 90s making wine in Monterey County. And I started picking earlier and earlier to try to get more brightness, more lively qualities to the wine. And sorry for those of you who are only listening, but we're having my Pinot Blanc right now. And it's, you know, bright, lively, crisp, exactly the kind of wine that wasn't understood much back then. Or it was treated like, oh, this is a quaffable thing. But now you can see the complexity in a wine like that, and people really respect that. And I think it's great. I think it's great seeing the evolution. As far as I'm concerned, we're in a golden age for the U.S. awareness of wine. And I understand that it might not look like it if you haven't been doing this for 30 or 40 years. But believe me, we are. I believe you. I won't even question you again on it. (laughs) So how did you go from Ohio— wherever you were at in the little different places that you were doing to California. Was that your first like wine stop? Well, I'm a family of nerds and I'm a family of people who are in you know, my family culture was you're supposed to go, go to school, learn stuff, go get a career. So saying I really like wine did not sound like it had anything to do with going to school, learning stuff, and I'm going to go get a career. So I found the school that everybody knew about at the time, which was UC Davis, and and went to UC Davis in the 80s, graduated with a degree in winemaking, and been working on it since then. And I was coming up here and going to the Steamboat Pinot Noir Conference. I'm sure you've had people on this podcast talk about Steamboat before. Not a lot. It was so such it, an important— Can you give like a Cliff Notes version of Steamboat? Yeah, basically— Steamboat was a winemakers-only conference where people would bring unfinished wines quite often and usually, in fact, flawed wines that they knew were screwed up, either because of their own doing or because they got a dumbass batch of grapes in that wasn't destined to make good wine. And they would taste blind with the whole group of other winemakers and unveil and then talk about what's up with this wine, what's wrong with it, how to get this way, anybody know how you'd fix this? And it was a level of honesty that basically the public was not allowed to see this level of honesty about what's really going on. The positive side is the learning curve is super steep. When you're really all sharing your dirty laundry with each other, you really can learn how to avoid the pitfalls. Because we all want to talk about wine as if some astounding vineyard produces astounding flavors and the result is astounding wine. But the truth is, at least 50% of this job is making sure that bad shit doesn't happen. And that's Steamboat was really all about talking about how bad shit happens and how to fix it and how to make it not happen in the first place. That to me has a lot to do with why if you go to a tasting right now of Oregon Pinot Noirs, 
it is hard to find a wine that you don't like. You might have different levels of how much you love them, but it's really hard to find a wine that is that you don't like. And I attribute a ton of that to the Steamboat Pinot Noir Conference. And that was held in Oregon every year, and I was I would be going up to it. That's how I met David Adelsheim. I met some other people in Oregon. Some people, like Eric Homaker, was an old friend from Davis days. I ended up getting introduced to David back then, and that's how I ended up at Adelsheim in 01. So how much did you do in California then as far as like working for wineries and vineyards and things down there? I mean, did you get kind of your feet wet down there and then realize that that just really wasn't your style, what you wanted to do, and then meeting David brought you north? Well, most of my time down there was in the Salinas Valley, which is, by California standards, a fairly cool place. But I was still starting to pick earlier and earlier because I was liking the brighter side of the flavors. But, you know, it was still the 90s, which meant everybody was still comparing things based on how rich they were. And no one was thinking of any other attribute that might be good. And so, you know, my last year there, there was a famous Chardonnay vineyard just down the road. And I picked my Chardonnay five weeks before they did. I felt like my Chardonnay was plenty rich. I didn't need it to be more rich. I wanted rich and lively. And by the time they picked, I mean, I pulled over and was tasting fruit in their vineyard. And I thought, these are like soft little bags of applesauce. These aren't, <laughs> this isn't a crisp, lively apple anymore. Yeah. You know? And, uh, and I think they were trying to win the richest Chardonnay award. And I wasn't. So then after that, you come back up and talk to more people in Oregon. It's like, why this appears to be the place that I will naturally make the kind of wine I'm really looking to make. So do you think this is, and this is kind of a loaded question and it could just be wrong, but do you think like, I mean, there's so many things that go through like fashion levels, you know, like with clothing, you go from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and then it reverts back 30 years later. So do you think we're in a phase now where the lively, crisp kind of expansion of the wine industry is what it is? And will it go back to where that richness is, the sought after flavors and techniques? I don't think so for two reasons. First, to get especially nerdy, those kind of little trends like clothing trends, mm -hmm. the hottest thing doesn't last very long. So you're talking, those are like two, three years kind of trends. Or, or less. And, you know, and I think there are trends in the wine industry. No offense to anybody who's really hung their hat on this, but I think of like orange wine as a trend that may or may not exist in five more years. But I think the larger trend of people really learning how interesting the flavors can be without trying to max out how giant and rich you are if it's a white or tannic you are if it's a red. I think those are here to stay and those are much longer trend lines. And, you know, Pinot Noir being so much more understood now than it was, it was a cult wine in the 90s. And this isn't just about sideways either. I'm, I, mean, I was going to say, are we going to no, mention this, sideways? No, this trend, yeah. this trend started before then. Yeah. Uh, I saw it happening before then. And uh, I just think people are so much more in tune with interesting flavors that are genuinely complex, you know, and not, not all about, not everything has to be the densest flavor possible. Because think of, I mean, if you go out to dinner, what's the densest flavor possible? Well, you'd probably be like, going out on a special occasion and having an entree-sized portion of jalapeno poppers, yeah. right? Because <laughs> yeah. that's a shit ton of flavor. Yes. But why would that be boring? Uh, yeah. Not to mention rough on you. But, yes. But, you know, uh, and I think people are becoming aware that wine is the same, right? Let's look for something a little more subtle. Let's look for something that has a lively quality. I think the second glass of that wine 
should be still very interesting to you. You should be saying, man, I'm still curious about something I thought I was getting in that. You know, if it isn't, then that wine's a little one-dimensional. And I, I definitely see people tuning into that. Yeah. It's a... Uh... It's interesting. I love how winemakers kind of take on, you know, their story and their road on how they're getting to where they are, and then also how they look at their product and how they see it now and going forward. So nice work. Very articulate. Yes. You didn't even say the F word or nothing yet. So we're, we're doing good. Oh, fuck. I'll say it sooner okay. or later. Okay. Don't worry. <laughs> I knew it was coming. Okay. So you met David Adelsheim at Steamboat. How long did it take to translate from making California wine to come to Oregon. And was that your first stop? It wasn't even a translation to me because that was already the kind of wine I was trying to make. I was very lucky to work at Adelsheim when I came up here for a couple of reasons. First of all, being such a revered winery, whether or not you made good wine was going to get noticed. You were going to make a name for yourself there. But secondly, David was already steadfast that he wanted that style of real, a real classic, complex, elegant style of wine. And this was 01. This was kind of mid-transition into what I think of as the real modern era of wine. And not everybody was there yet, right? There were still people trying to win the Darkest Pinot Award or the, the Big Tannic Award. So I was very fortunate that I was working for someone who felt the same way I did. So there wasn't a lot of like questioning of why are we going down this road? And that gave me a lot of freedom to really understand the vineyards of this area and the different subregions within the Willamette Valley. And I became very fascinated with, amongst other things, if you get grapes from two different vineyards and they taste different, then as a winemaker, I should probably develop a completely different way of making wine for vineyard A versus vineyard B because the fruit already tastes different. Not because I'm trying to make them taste different, but because they do. And that became something I was very interested in, and that still guides me today. And I, I love the idea of doing a deep dive into, what should I do with this fruit that's in front of me? And it might just be because this vintage is different than last vintage, like I was talking about the 18 versus 19s, or maybe because this site is different than the site that we got fruit in from yesterday. But the fruit in front of me, what's the right way to turn that into great wine? And the answer might change tomorrow when you get a different batch of fruit in. And we need to be ready for that as winemakers. I think we should understand a very wide range of winemaking approaches, a wide range of winemaking techniques, and be ready to say, you know, I think this might really respond to something different than what we were doing with the fruit we got in yesterday. So in 01, how in tune was the industry with the idea of different sites tasting different? I mean, was that something that was, were people really aware of that? Or was it just something that was maybe like growing and was becoming a lot more like in your face type? I think at the time, whether you're talking about California or Oregon, in fact, whether you're talking about Pinot Noir or Cabernet for that matter, I think there was a... Here's our, our regular Pinot Noir, regular Cabernet, whatever, regular Chardonnay, and here's our reserve. We were transitioning then into this notion of there were some wineries already who were putting out a lot of single vineyard wines who were starting that. But that was a little more of a niche thing then, and we were getting more and more of that as we moved forward. 
I think that's one of the reasons why perhaps the public went along for the ride and became more nerdy about that kind of thing. You know, because you started seeing people say, you know what, I care about how that particular wine you make from that one site. And it's been fun to see. It's been fun to see that whole transition. I still like blending. Don't get me wrong. Our Willamette Valley tier Pinot that is blended from all the sites I work from, I still think on some level that might be the most complex Pinot I make because you get the advantage of combining all these things together that have different personalities. So I don't sell that short at all. But if you can show off what uniquely amazing thing happened from this site that year, then that's pretty cool. You know, I still love doing that too. Plus, once you get to the point, you know, if you feel like you've gained an appreciation for how to make wine differently from different sites, then you kind of want to show that off. You kind of want to say, look how different this turned out than this. The trick as a winemaker is to not have a favorite, right? Because as soon as I say, I really like the way this site tastes, then I'm probably going to screw up any other site, right? I'm pr- because I'm going to be subconsciously trying to make it taste like my favorite site. So the real trick, and there's another thing I kind of learned at Alzheimer's when we worked with all those different sites, was how to really appreciate each site and make it like, you know, if I'm working on that wine, that's my favorite today. And really try to make each one be amazing. Even if at the end of the day, you might have said, this one's more my style than this. But while you're making the wine, don't think that. They're all supposed to be as amazing as they can be in the style they're heading towards. So is it normal for a winemaker to have multiple different styles with what they're doing? Or is that somebody that's being a little bit overambitious and trying to hit too many markers and be too creative? It's actually a more delicate question than you might think you're asking. Because there are wineries where you go to and I feel like I'm tasting their style more than I'm tasting their sights. Those aren't my favorite wineries. To me, I I see that and I think, just bottle one wine, right? If your wine's going to be about your style, don't bottle four different Pinots. So for me, I would prefer to go to the winery where the sites have something interesting to say. And I'm not trying to be some purist hands-off winemaker about that because the whole idea of being a hands-off winemaker is complete bullshit. None of us are. We all manipulate stuff. I mean, we're growing a plant that from Europe that was in itself hybridized sometimes naturally, sometimes by man, over the last couple of millennia or more. And we're putting it on hillsides where it's not natural for it to grow. And we're putting it on trellises. If you're going to tell me this is an unadulterated expression of terroir, you're full of shit. You know, (laughs) we're doing this to make something delicious happen because we believe something delicious will happen here. And I believe in that. But the real question is, do you understand how to both adapt your winemaking to the fruit in front of you, while at the same time having a gentle enough hand that all you're doing is really helping something amazing happen that that fruit seemed to be trying to do in the first place. You know, is everything you're doing respecting what that site tasted like that year? And if you know how to do that, and if you know how to have some restraint while you're doing it, then you can talk about terroir. You can talk about, you know, that this site really does have this amazing, totally different tannin profile than this other site or whatever. And I think when that shows, I do think that's a special thing because the Willamette Valley is a pretty astounding place to grow these varieties. And if we're not celebrating that, then 
I don't know why we're here in a way. Yeah, true that. Well, let's uh let's uh shift to your new project because you did work for Adelsheim for a number of years. How many years did you work there? 16 and a half, okay. 17 vintages. And so now you're the old guy or the legend guy that's now the new kid on the block with a new tasting room and everything. So why the shift now and what's different and what's exciting about all of it? Well, I mean, to be perfectly candid, well, first of all, I was there for almost 17 years. So if I were to tell you there was any anything wrong with Adelsheim, I'd, then that'd be a weird thing to say. I loved it there. I loved everything about it. It was an opportunity to learn so much and to do so with access to amazing fruit and with access to a market that was noticing what you're doing. I mean, it was all the things that you should ever want as a professional winemaker. On the other hand, I didn't want to grow stale either for my own self or for Adelsheim, right? Adelsheim shouldn't grow stale. I shouldn't grow stale. But I'd been there so long that that was in danger of happening. And so I started thinking about what the next thing should be. As soon as I thought about that, I realized I probably already have the best pure winemaking job in the Valley. So apparently the next thing is going to be I'll start something. And for the record, I tried really hard to not name it David Page Wines. Uh, <laughs> that was especially once we found a vineyard in, that we bought in the uh, Eel Amity Hills. I really wanted to name it after the place. But unfortunately, the place really is called Walnut Hill, which sounds generic. It sounds like a housing development. Yeah. So it didn't sound like a real place. It didn't even sound like that. And my partners and I, one by one, we pretty much crossed out every other name any of us came up with. And then some attorney told me I probably couldn't even just call it Paige. I had to use my first name also. Otherwise, we wouldn't get a trademark. So So many rules. I am not the first guy to jump to putting my name on a label by any stretch. But what's great about it is I can now be going small again. I can do a deeper dive into a smaller number of vineyard sources. I still like buying other fruit. We have our own vineyard in the Yola Hills that I'm especially proud of. But that doesn't mean that has all of the flavors I ever want to make wine from. You know, so I still buy some fruit from some friends of ours, you know, the Peterson Nedry's up on Ribbon Ridge, mm-hmm. Tom Mortimer over on Parrot Mountain, and some other people. And because it's fun working with fruit that has different textures, different flavors. And so I still get a kick out of working with some different areas. But now it's instead of 12 vineyards, it's four. And you can do a deeper dive. You can do, you can get much more in depth about what really are the possibilities from this site. What the are true the, deep geek can come out. Well, yeah. I mean, what's the chain of events that will lead this fruit to being the most amazing wine it can be. And like I was saying before, that's not supposed to mean what's the chain of events will lead it to being the wine that is to my personal liking because that vineyard might have a different answer in mind. That vineyard might have something else going on that could be astounding if I find it. And, you know, so it's not about making everything the same way because I like this technique or or always looking for the red fruit side because I like red fruit or whatever. You know, in fact, when we were looking for a vineyard, it was frustrating for my partners because uh, they were saying, well, what do you want out of a vineyard? And I kept saying, you know what? I want to find a vineyard that is going to have a distinct personality. I personally don't care if it ends up being blackberry or dark earth or bright cherry or whatever. I want it to really have a unique personality of its own. 
and I still feel that way. And I and I feel lucky to have found the spot we have. I love the Eola Hills. I love the earth kind of complexity that comes out of there, the tea-like tannins that I get out of there. And I still get to play with other vineyards, right? I, it's not like I put all my eggs in one basket. I think that's the beauty of wine is that, and especially the more I learn about it, there's just so many possibilities with sites and different locations and different elevations and different varietals, obviously. And there's just, there's, it's an endless supply of options, it seems. And also kind of an endless supply of, I mean, you could blow off the opportunity to make these choices if you want to, but the truth is it's an endless supply of choices about what are you doing with your wine. So, you know, right now we're drinking one of my 18s and I brought one of the 18s because it was such a, I mean, those wines extracted themselves. You put 18 Pinot Noir in a, in a fermenter and, and it's rich and dark and whatever, no matter what you did, no matter what else you did, all you did is put it in a fermenter and it was rich and dark. And the 19, on the other hand, was so much more elegant and delicate. And I actually left the 19s on the skins longer than the 18s, not because I was trying to make them bigger, but because that delicate side, I thought, needed more time to really become complete, you know, to really become as interesting as it could be. And just that challenge of saying, you know, this is always Iron Chef. There's always something new to learn about this. This is, there's always something that I should be looking for and I should have an open mind for that. And I wouldn't have told you before the 19 vintage started that I was going to leave those on the skins longer, that you have to taste that and be ready to say whatever I thought was true yesterday might not be true. I love that this is still teaching me new things. Every year is different. So you never know what Mother Nature is going to do and what the grapes are going to do. They kind of have their own personalities from the weather, whatever's going on. So I think that's what's so interesting about wine. I want to talk about what you are making really quick because we're already running out of time and there's still so much to talk about. So Let's talk about really quickly your new tasting room because you got a brand new tasting room at the bottom of Walnut Hill. It is a real place. And <laughs> um, and we need to make sure that everybody knows where to come find you because it's really easy. It is really easy. When I first came here, if we had a vineyard we were visiting, you know, if I was going down to Temperance Hill to check on our vineyard with Adelsheim, I felt like I had to like pack a lunch, bring a cooler, maybe some extra water, you know, in case I got stranded because I was going so far. And now, you know, this whole place has grown up so much. I feel like, now Northern Eola Hills is not that far away. And I'm a little more than 15 minutes out of Dundee. I'm about 15 minutes out of uh, McMinnville, which doesn't explain why I was late today. But uh, You're bottling it, on it, Monday. You, you know, we gave you a little grace. It's not that far away. And there's so much going on down there. But like I said, we got fortunate to find this vineyard that was already 20 years old. And I already knew some of its personality because I bought a little bit of fruit from it in 2018 and we made a Pinot Noir and a Chardonnay. And I was very happy with the results of that. And so after that vintage was in barrel, we bought the vineyard and the Pinot Blanc that's in that vineyard kind of went along for the ride. I, I hadn't made that before, but I'm super in love with the Pinot Blanc from there. Like I said, I'm, I mean, we're, well, we can't be more than, 10 minutes or so south of Stoller or something. I mean, people know that landmark pretty well. You know, it's not that far away. And I just love showing people around. And we're still tiny. We're new. It's not a big winery. It's not a show place. I will never win the award for the most elegant charcuterie plate 
or fanciest china. Or bathroom. You told me this morning. Or bathroom. Or the fanciest bathroom. But you will go there and learn about our wines from someone who literally helped make our wine. And they will actually know things. And it might be me, but even if it's not me, they'll be, it'll be someone who knows their shit and who knows why our wines taste the way they do and knows something about the area. I'm not saying other tasting rooms don't have educated people in it, but it's not often that you can get one step closer to the process when you go into the tasting room. And if there's anything that you can get out of us, that's what it is. And I hope you see what it is we're trying to do when you taste the wine. I think it's super special. And I've talked to several people about this on a lot of different levels here recently that makes Oregon and the Pacific Northwest so special is the fact that you can go to the tasting room and meet the winemaker and drink and bullshit with the winemaker. And I don't know mm-hmm. how often you find that in California. I don't know how often you find that in Europe, um, maybe the smaller family productions, whatever. But here it's really special. And it is very often that you get to have that experience with the person that made that wine. I agree. And what I think is really special about that, at least speaking to the experience you'd get at our winery, is that a lot of the things that we like about our wines have been turned into buzzwords over the years. And so they no longer sound unique, right? If I talk about the elegance, the balance, the complexity, whatever, I mean, there's so many words that are now buzzwords if I talk about terroir, if I talk about any of that stuff. But if I can tell you about it and you're tasting my wine, you will make a much stronger connection to what it is I'm talking about. Or another way to put it is you'll have an opportunity to judge for yourself. If you don't see it, then you're free to leave thinking I'm just as much full of BS as anybody else. But if you can taste those things in the wine as we're talking about them, then I think that's a, a much better connection. It's a much more profound connection than just reading our website and ordering a bottle and trying it. There's a lot more personality that comes with it when you get to sit in the tasting room and see the site where it comes from, talk to BS, bullshit, whatever it is with the winemaker itself. You have a whole other appreciation. I think what makes wine so special is, and I just had this conversation with a friend yesterday. They're like, it never tastes the same when I go home. And I'm like, it's because it's the experience of where you're at and what you're doing that makes that bottle of wine so memorable and so special. And the other thing that I think I hope people get when they visit wineries in Oregon, because I think it's so special about the Willamette Valley, this idea that, you know, I was talking earlier about Steamboat, et cetera. Our ideas are not our ideas in some sort of vacuum, right? We have learned from each other. And if we're smart, we've learned a lot from each other because we all have a lot to teach each other. And so when you taste around the wineries of the Willamette Valley, especially if you come to the smaller wineries where you are more likely to talk to the winemaker or whatever, you will pick up on that. You will pick up on how much we've inoculated each other with the knowledge of what we've learned. And I just think that, to me, is so much more important than anything you'll learn at just one site. You know, and I'm so proud to have been part of that and to have had people work for me who've been on your podcast and, you know, and that kind of thing. And I feel like this area does something that other areas don't do, or at least don't do well. This wasn't happening in Monterey when I was working there. 
Well, on that note, which is so lovely, I want to make sure that everybody knows exactly where your winery and your tasting room is, and Mm -hmm. then where to find you on, do you know where your socials channels are? Well, it's pretty easy. It's pagewines.com. There we go. Or at David Page Wines on most social media sites. Not yet on the new one, whatever it's called. I can't remember. I don't know. I learned about a new one today too. It's like threads. The, or, the threads. Yeah. yeah. I'm, not, not, I'm not yet yeah. on that. Yeah. But um, me either. So we're in the and, same boat. Uh, you know, if we post something, even when it comes to our thread, it's the same thing I talk about when you come to the tasting room. If you look at our social media site, I hope you learn something about what we're actually doing and not just, you know, I mean, I love my dog, but you don't need another picture of my dog. You know, so I hope that you actually find interesting stuff about what's going on in the vineyard, what's going on in the winery. Right now we're in lag phase in the valley. Why is that important? And don't just say lag phase and expect people to nod knowingly, you know. But if you go and look and you might find out why that's important and what we do at this time, why that's an important part of the growing season. And just things like that, because I do think I embrace and I really welcome that people really do seem to want to learn about wine and we should be here for them. Agreed. And on that note, I'm going to say thank you. Thank you so much. I know you have a very, very busy schedule right now with IPNC going on, which is, for those that don't know, is the International Pinot Noir Celebration. Man, that's a mouthful for me. So IPNC is this weekend, which is a big event here in McMinnville. And then you're bottling next week. So you got also uh, a big event uh, is also a big event. So thank you, Dave Page, for being part of this and finally us making this happen. So thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm due to another visit to the tasting room. So absolutely. Okay, so up next is Casey and Dave with Namaste. And I think I forgot to say it up front, but you need a glass of wine for this stuff. So go fill your glass of wine. You should know the drill by now. And we'll be right back. Okay, I hope your glasses are full because this is going to be a ride. We are back with Dave and Casey with Namaste, and he is sweating on the other side of the table because he just doesn't really know how this is going to go today. I'm scared. I think he told me it was going to be a shit show. (laughs) I'm scared. Yes, well, you don't need to be scared. If you were sitting in my seat, you'd be scared too. I wouldn't. I've been sitting over there before. So anyhow, let's talk about Namaste because this is going to get colorful because I love your guys' story. I love your love story. Let's start with your um, previous career, because it was very interesting what you were doing before you decided to move to Oregon and be a winemaker. But even before that, I love to talk about family and like growing up. And was wine ever part of your like upbringing, your culture, like part of any of that? No. (laughs) The simple answer. I was born and raised in Sonoma County, and my family got into Sonoma County in 1876. We owned very large pieces of acreage back then, and we sold them all for nothing. I think you told me that. He's like, my family has owned great property and has basically, I don't, squandered is probably not the right word, but maybe, but has basically lost all of it. Like, we don't have any of this. Not lost it. They just sold sold it it at a time that they shouldn't have sold it. But at that time, it was a lot of money. So the last 
Mascherini Ranch was just outside of Petaluma in Sonoma County, and it was 400 acres, right where all the vineyards are now outside of Petaluma, and they sold it for 300000 So if you wanted to go down into Sonoma County nowadays, I think 400 acres might cost you just a little bit more than 300000 I would probably guess you're probably correct on that. So my only connection to wine growing up, because I, li- I grew up in a highball family, so it was a lot of just mixed drinks, Coca-Cola and rum and highballs, and I— New, De- define highball. highball. Well, highball is just a mixed cocktail okay. as cheap as you can. So you get a two liter bottle of Coke and you get some cheap R&R. bourbon. Yeah, cheap bourbon, cheap rum, and you just continue to make drinks. But that is also when I would, growing up with my father, he loved wine coolers. And it was basically a gallon jug of Gallo and a two liter bottle of 7-Up. And that was the weekend. So the depth of wine knowledge was not ingrained from the family. So wine spritzers, more very more much or less. wine spritzers. Yes, and very. There's much, nothing wrong with a good wine spritzer. It sounds like a hell of a headache though, and hangover afterwards. That's only when you stop drinking. That's true. Okay, there you go. Good point. So then I went into what would eventually be my career, and it was a blessed career in construction. And I got drafted by a mentor of mine, and I got put in his right back pocket as his apprentice. And we were building these extremely high-end homes on extremely large pieces of property. So a 24,000 square foot mansion on 500 acres between Napa and Sonoma. And then as that was finishing, my boss came to me and said, I think you should take the foreman job on Joe Montana's house. Small name. Nobody knows who he is. Used to play. Well, I bet some kids nowadays don't know who he is. I don't know. So anyway, I I went to the interview. I had never been a foreman in construction before. So I went to the interview. Uh, My current boss and I had made up my resume in, in the garage of the current house we were building, went and basically just inflated my resume to no end and was handed the plans to Joe Montana's castle outside of Calistoga. It had a drawbridge, a moat, turrets. It had Good it was Lord. a castle outside of Calistoga. I thought you were like totally like exaggerating on this being just a big house. No, it's a castle. It was a castle. When you have and turrets it was and a moat. Gorgeous. Yeah. It was gorgeous. So I'm 90% through with it. I'm just about done. And my boss disappears. I never saw him again. So I'm standing there with my crews, and there's no checks to hand out, including my own. And I never saw him again. All of a sudden, I was cut adrift, and that job disappeared overnight. And I found my bags back on doing remodeling in Marin, and that is hellish construction work. There's nothing harder than remodeling because you're starting with other people's mistakes. Yes, agree. I mean, not that I've done it, but I've been around lots of contractors. And it's a, I don't know if it's a specialty thing for people that are really good at it, but whatever. But you also worked on Robin Williams' house, which I want to highlight. Yes. That was the first house. Which is super cool. That was the garage in which we created my resume. And please tell me how, like, I think you told me he was very quiet about the whole process, which one would not believe that with with Robin Williams being as well, I think everyone would understand that these houses, the, the names happened to be men, but the houses were for the wife. So that was very much not Robin's house. It was Marsha's house. 
And it wasn't Joe's house. It was Jennifer's house. And the decisions were made appropriately according to that. There we go. And so if I needed to have a a question answered on where I was going to go with a certain part of the construction, you went to the source. And so I had many sit-down conversations with Jennifer about what needed to happen in this hallway or this bedroom or this doorway. It just kind of coincided that way. Yeah. No, it totally makes sense. Okay. So you go from high-end castles to Dallas, Oregon. How does that happen? Well, these beautiful places were on gorgeous acreage with a view. And I'd heard all the stories of what my family had had in the past. And I was not a fan of California and the Bay Area and the overpopulated roads to everywhere. I wanted my own acreage with a view. That was my number one goal. I wanted to be on my property, build my thing, have the view. And the way I put it is I was taking 80s, 80 hours a week to build someone else's dreams, and I wanted to take that time and build my own. And as I was doing the remodels in Marin, I was starting to search for pieces of property that fit that. Couldn't afford anything in California. I looked 600 miles north and stumbled upon a property that was for sale at a price that was affordable at the time in the turn of the century. It had 200 acres, a gorgeous view towards the coast of the Van Duzer Corridor in the Willamette Valley. And it just so happened to have a 22-acre, 20-year-old vineyard on it that had three whites and two pinots already planted. I didn't know anything about winemaking or growing grapes, but I was young enough, dumb enough, (laughs) brave enough, (laughs) and stupid enough to take every dime I had and buy into the idea with no knowledge on how I was going to make that work. That's ballsy. Anybody can learn anything. Yeah. Nobody knows anything until they start. Every winemaker in the world had to start not knowing how to make wine. Absolutely. I agree. It doesn't matter what career path. I mean, you have to start from zero at some point or or start from one. But it always interests me. I mean, we've had a few people that have gone from one career that is completely polar opposite of winemaking and literally walking into a vineyard or winemaking studio or whatever. And it, voila, like you are, you're the winemaker. So how was that first little bit? Well, it seemed that everything I already knew had to take place. So before the construction career, I worked in a feed mill for the Teamsters Union, making feed for farms. And it turned out that this property had four chicken houses on it. So in order to get the wine running, I had to remodel the four chicken houses quickly get the contract back up with the integrator, Foster Farms, and get the chickens rolling again so that I had a cash flow so that I could get all the blackberries and the poison oak out of the vineyard, fix all the trellising, and build myself a small tasting room in a 50-year-old Quonset hut. (laughs) And at the time, it was the largest tasting room in the neighborhood. And everyone was coming up going, why so much space? And I'm I'm like, well, I hope I can fill it with people tasting the wine. And then the moment I got that open, 
I had five, six, seven wines to pour off of the one vineyard because I had the straight Chardonnay, the straight Riesling, the straight Gewurz, the blend called Peace. And I had the idea of I'll bottle the two blocks of Pinot separately with the Dijon 115 completely by itself, the Pomard by itself, and I'll blend the two for the reserve cuvee. So instead of coming up and having one or two whites and a Pinot, the moment we opened our doors, there were seven wines to pour. There you go. So let's uh, figure out the Namaste name, because I know you told me the story behind it. I don't fully remember. I'm so sorry. But I remember it was colorful. So, And there's really nothing about you that is not colorful. I'll just say that. that you, I you Namaste. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> when people see me standing <laughs> in the tasting they, room, they think... it totally makes sense. <laughs> they think Namaste. My Viking tattoos, uh, my, your red my hair. big red hair, my body, my frame. It says, it just screams Peace. gentle and Yoga. Namaste. Yeah. Yeah. Namaste. Okay. Peace, tranquility. Okay. Yes. Okay. Well, well I was in a real estate agent's car going around looking at this property and others. And I was reading a book at the time and as we hit gravel to go to this property, I ran across Namaste in the book I was reading. The definition in the book was the spirit in me honors the spirit in you. I thought Namaste Vineyards sounded nice. My last name's a little bit of a handful, so I didn't want to go with Mascherini Vineyards because it would just be butchered forever. But Namaste Vineyards sounded nice. And then I drew on the cliche. I drew on a bar napkin, a yin-yang with white, wine grapes and red wine grapes and then took the definition and turned it into the spirit of the wine honors the spirit of the vine because at the start it was just estate grown i wasn't going to buy any fruit there's plenty of fruit on the property so it was just going to be estate grown only so the wine was honoring these 20 year old vines and it fell into place that way and then it just seemed that the names needed to coincide so the blocks of vineyard the Tranquility Riesling, the Abundance Pinot Noir, the Serenity Chardonnay, the Peace Chardonnay, the Prosperity Pinot, and the Harmony Gewürztraminer. I thought it would be a great way to attract uh, women. <laughs> <laughs> he was single at the time. Yes, I was okay. single doing all this. Uh, okay, yes. and that segues right into Casey <laughs> yes. and, and the, the success story of Match.com. Yes. Yes. Okay, Casey, let's introduce you here. You guys told me a story about your first meeting, and I about died laughing out in the other room. So <laughs> let's hear this Match.com story, because it is a good one. So we met on Match.com. Uh, he was the first guy I met on Match.com. I was the last, quote-unquote, psycho he was going to meet. He went on all kinds of really bad dates. And we ended up personally meeting for the first time at a restaurant. He got there. We're both early birds being on time is late to both of us. So he was there early looking at the main door. I came in the secondary door that he did not know existed. Well, because he'd been on so many bad dates, he was trying to decide whether or not he was actually Dave Mascherini. Got it. As, so he was incognito to before he saw you to decide if he was going to be there or not there. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. And so I tapped him on the shoulder was about to say hello, and he turned around and looked at me and said, you came in the wrong door. My immediate comment back to him was, no, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest is kind of history the at rest, this point. The rest is history. Yes, we met in 06, got married in 09, and... We've got an anniversary coming up here shortly. 14 which, years. Tuesday. 
There we go. 14 years. Look at you go. Look at you go. (laughs) Things are destined to be. And so what has changed since? So you go from this peace and tranquility that it just embodies Dave Masserini, and now you add Casey to the mix. <laughs> it's it's such an oxymoron saying that. I'm so sorry. I really didn't have all I you. do adore you, just so you know. <laughs> I'm really, feeling adored right yes, now. Yes, yes. You're really easy to poke fun at. <laughs> I really didn't do a lot with Namaste or for Namaste until, honestly, recently. I worked outside of Namaste to help with the bills. <laughs> And I had my own career from a supply chain perspective. I left that job in January of this year and have really focused because we are opening or have opened the new tasting room. So with that, we needed extra time from a marketing perspective, from a social media perspective, really to have that focus. And so that's what I've been doing for the past six months. Yeah. And I want to get into the tasting room here in just a little while because it's stunning. Like I, when I drove up, I'm like, gosh, is that really, it was still a rough barn. It was, I mean, from the outside, outside, from the outside, it was still an old barn. And when I walked, yeah. And when I walked in, I'm just like, oh crap. (laughs) Okay. I need to just like, we just need to make this my house. So you had kind of the whole Dave Masserini namaste going pre- Casey. Now Casey has come into the mix. Now what has changed like shortly after that? I mean, we got the Quonset hut, we got other things going on. What changed between then and now? Then being when? Then being like match.com and now being pre-opening of the new tasting room. Well, my emotional stability got much more stable. That's good to know. Yes. yes. I, I was much more grounded and not um, as hair triggered as they would say. So I was able to- Is it to, the red hair? I was able to Love focus it. a lot better. <laughs> and uh, yeah, redheaded Italian. Um, <laughs> it just, the stability, the calmness, the perseverance, the we're doing the right thing. I was no longer alone. It just gives you a much more um, peace of mind. Namaste has had to always finance itself. Mm-hmm. My deep pocket got me into the place. That's how deep my pocket was. So I got into the place and it has had to pay for itself ever since. And I am not the overly social butterfly that today's world needs the creation from on social media. So she's going to lend a lot towards that. And we've really, since January, have really ramped up that part of our Presence. Of our presence. And I, I'm i overhearing, we've been open for 20 plus years. And it's kind of my little pet peeve is, oh, I've never heard of you. Yeah. I'm like, I've been open It's kind of a forever. It's kind of a punch in the gut. It, it, with stuff it is, like but that, it's no bit. one's fault but my own. I just, there was no advertising budget. Yeah. It was the only advertising Namaste's really ever done has been the blue sign on the highway. Yeah. And it's... When people are traveling from Salem out to the coast or the casino, there's the blue sign. And Mm -hmm. that was what the advertising was. Now, we've really gotten involved over the past seven, eight years with our advertising co-ops, being the heart of the Willamette Wineries Association. Um, Now with the Van Duzer Corridor ABA. Which Mm -hmm. we ratified in 19. I was very, I was on the board for that. And that took years to finally get that one ratified. But we really haven't picked up 
the AVA has not really started pushing advertising yet, but that will also help and coincide with, and beautifully, it's going to coincide with the whole new tasting expansion room. and the tasting room on the vineyard property. It's, I, I think, I think you're right. Like with the whole new AVA, I mean, like people like to focus on that and they mm -hmm. like to see what the personality of these different AVAs are. And they may be familiar with Dundee and, and Shehalem and Eola Hills, but now, ooh, we got Van Duzer and ooh, we got, was it Long, Long Tom something rather? Yeah, something down in Eugene, which mm -hmm. it's a weird name. Really could have used a better name, whoever named that. But I mean, I know there's a reason for it, but it's just hard for me to remember. But well, the, the, the people... weird thing about with the government is the naming part, they'll take over from you. Yeah. You can't, it has to be a historically significant name. You can't give it just a beautiful name. It has to be historically tied to your area. And relevant and sometimes to the area. finding something that will work yeah. that doesn't sound like we've got the the basket slough near us, which yeah. is a beautiful little landmark oh, and gorgeous for, for bird watching and it everything. It has a terrible but name. But you though. do not want slough no. in the name of your AVA. No, it's a, it sounds like a sewer hole. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yes. So you, 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 no. you avoid that. Yes. <laughs> Typically. And Typically. Since Typically. our thing was yes. all about the wind, then the Van yes. Duzer Corridor, which is the funnel from the coast, then we just ran with that. And it's all about the, the winds batter us. But let's talk about the beauty of those winds, though, too. Because, yes, they do batter you, but there's also a beauty and a benefit to what those those winds do for your vines. They make the vines struggle. I mean, people hear that and they're like, oh, so is it going to be, you know, what does that do to the wine? Does it make it a little bit more this or does it make it a little more that? But what does it do? The yin-yang's in everything, yeah. of course. And so the way I look at it is you want to treat the vineyard like a man and the wine like a woman. So you want the vineyard to struggle, work hard, store things up. You want the, the vineyard out there working. You want it pulling the energy out of the ground and storing it in its beautiful source, which is the grapes. But the moment you take those grapes off the vine, you want to get gentle and you want to take your time. And it's going to take time. And it's not going to be ready until it's ready, is it? <laughs> And so you've got two very different spheres in which you're working when you've got both sides with the vineyard and the wine. And one, you you can be a little bit more hands-off and let it do its work, but you've got to be hands-on once once you're once you're in the winery. And you you do. I love you. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, your anecdotes are I love them. They're so great. Okay. So now we're in the vineyard. We've talked about the winds. We've talked about your story. We've talked about your love. Hands on, hands off, whatever. Let's talk about your, these wines because we've had this white blend. I know there's Pinot. There's a dark red. I tasted a lot of wines when I was in your tasting mm -hmm. room. And okay, let's go back to the whole, well, I haven't really heard of you in 20 years. So I can see where there might be a little bit of confusion with your satellite tasting yes. room office because I drove by it. I don't know, four times a week going back and forth to Monmouth. Um, so I can see where there's a little bit of confusion. That no longer exists. No. Nope. Yep. And now you have this beautiful estate outside of Perrydale, between Perrydale and Dallas-ish, mm -hmm. kind yeah. of. Yeah. Between Salem I and mean, the coast. Yeah. I mean, I came the back way and hit every dirt road possible because that's just apparently the way I roll. It's pretty much a dirt road that leads to Namaste. In either direction. Which, so right off of Highway 22. Yeah, which, right which is not a bad deal. But no, if no. you are super anal retentive about your car being clean, you're going <laughs> to struggle with a little bit of dust. 
But Same as if you were going out happens. to Archery Summit. Yep. But it is well worth the trip to get out there because your tasting room, I will say it is probably one of my favorite tasting rooms I've ever been in because I'm a Thank sucker you. for an old barn. <laughs> and when I did pull up, it was still a rough 100-year-old mm-hmm. barn. I mean, but We hadn't I, got outside yet yes. except for the deck. But when I walked in, I'm just like, oh, my goodness. Your craftsmanship with your construction, it just shone, shined, shined, whatever, everywhere. It was beautiful. The fireplace is stunning. You should be so incredibly proud. Because it's a, what is it, an old hay shoot? Yes. The old hay shoot. Yes. That you've rocked and done whatever. But you've kept the rusticness of the barn with a modern touch that Mm -hmm. really – Makes it so comfortable. Yeah, the air conditioning and in the barn. And the full <laughs> I was there system. the day yes, that it turned on. Yes, Casey yes. and I are sitting in the barn going, yes. okay. Oh, oh there, there it is. There. there it is. Oh my God. Yes, but it is. It is such a beautiful space. You guys have done such a wonderful job with it. Thank you. You, you should be so incredibly That's been proud. the last year of my existence. Yes. yes. Are you glad that it's kind of wrapped up? Are you bored now? His body is. Yes. His body is my very body glad. is very glad. Oh, I bet. <laughs> this is, I, I, when I had my construction career, it was in a different vehicle. <laughs> that 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 vehicle could be treated like a four wheel drive truck, and this one's more like an ambulance that I'm riding around in now. And it's just, boy, yeah. I am very proud of how it ended up because the barn was the first building I walked into when I first stepped onto the property, and I did what you did and said this would make a gorgeous house, and I drew my plans up then to turn it into a house. But I never got around to that. And then when we got married, we started remodeling the 1960s farmhouse mm-hmm. at the top of the hill because it was just, well, money was tight then. And it was at the top of the hill. And it was at the top. And it's just, you know. That's where the fancy The best live. view <laughs> is, is at the top the- of things. <laughs> yes. You know, don't go to the Empire State Building and go into the basement to look around. Yeah. So the view was is spectacular from the top. So we started remodeling that. So the barn just kind of s- still sat there. And Thanksgiving of 21. November of, tw- yep, November 21. My lovely wife and my in-laws. Um, Ganged up on him. Twisted both of my <laughs> arms behind my back and said, do the barn. That's what, that's what, for our next evolution. Because Namaste has been in a state of evolution ever since it started, in all honesty. And... I think this evolution is the one that's going to make Namaste known. The Quonset Hut just, I mean, it was beautiful, had a great little view, but it was a little Quonset Hut. It was a nice, the wines have still been the same. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't, it wasn't a destination. And this tasting room in this barn, the way it turned with a 2,500 square foot deck that surrounds the tasting room that is just a view of the valley. It's a big deck. It's, it's a big. I got a really big deck. <laughs> and it's it's that is the perfect place to have a glass of wine right now in the in the valley on a nice on a nice day. It's it's stunning. It's beautiful. And that's that, sitting outside and when you come inside it's very lodge-esque and tons of space. I mean this is 70 7700 square feet of tasting room. Well, and you have a downstairs too. So we do. which has a lot of the character, which I think what Casey had told me that you are looking to do is like some winemaker dinners mm-hmm. and some things like that, which will be super cool with some big barn doors, like that carriage the, doors. Carriage mm-hmm. doors. Did you make those? I did. See? So talented. It's easier to make them than buy them. 
<laughs> and a lot cheaper. And that's why a lot yeah. of the construction, yeah. that's what had to be. There, there was no way for us to... To do everything we wanted to do. Without me doing the work. Yeah. One, I'm luckily very skilled in the construction part of things. So the doing the construction, from my point of view, was more of a fun... It was ending a love affair with the barn and creating the next relationship with it because it was just, I have loved this barn. At nights on part of my loops, I would just go down into the old barn and just sit upstairs and watch the owls fly back and forth uh, up in the rafters. So magical. And sit there with my glass of wine in the barn because the barn just had so much character just sitting where it was. Yeah. And in order to save it, 100 years old, it was not heading in the right direction. But we have, and now we're trying to convince people that it's still 100 years old. Oh, I'm literally having know customers come in. When did we build in. it? Where did we move it from? And now it doesn't look, you have to convince people now. Agreed. And I will also say that if you know what old barns are and you know what they look like and you know how they feel, there's still so much character of that original barn that you have saved and it really exemplified like the ceiling freaking kicks ass. Like, it's so beautiful. And if you go downstairs, you have the stanchions and the half walls and the things that were like where the cows were at mm -hmm. or the the hogs were at or whatever yep. was down there. And I think even the gutters in the, which from an insurance point of view, ankle killers for somebody <laughs> like me that's going to step in the hole, that's going to step in the gutter. Um, but I well, love- Well, the old feed bins now are, are where the barrels are stored. Yeah, which yep. I- Because they're I perfect mean, to hold barrels in. It's all basically the next evolution of what this barn is meant to be. The barn, we called it multiple different times, the barn speaking to us. Yeah. There were several things that happened that, quite frankly, weren't in the plan, but they worked out as perfectly. Bob, as Bob Ross would say, they were happy accidents. They're, They're happy, there ha we go. happy yes. accidents. Yes. There indeed. are no mistakes, just happy accidents. Yes. Well, let's talk about your wines really quick because... These conversations go so quickly. <laughs> and and you okay, before we get into wine really quick, I want to mention that you are in a rock and roll band of some sort. Yes, right? No? Yes. Okay. We, we play tomorrow night in Dallas at Crazy Days. Okay. Well, we're this, oh, which this, will be, this yeah. won't we air. We would have played two weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we play on the 18th and 19th. Yes, the 18th so, and 19th so, of August at Benedetto and Salt Creek Cider House. There we go. Yeah, so he is not a shy little flower like he sounds on the radio. So <laughs> he is a true rock yes, and roll the big red star. Band. I did not name it. It is not named for me. The big red band? Is that yep. what you mm -hmm. said? Yes, the okay. big red band. I want... A bunch of business owners out of the Dallas and Albany area that got together to check off bucket lists. There we go. Yeah. Well, will you please send me some dates so I can we can come hang out Absolutely. and drink, drink beer or whatever it is that you guys are serving. I It would be super fun. So, okay, now let's talk about wine. The wines in our tasting room exemplify not only our love of our place, but also just our love of wines. So we have our estate-only lineup. We've got the Chardonnay, the Riesling, and the Gewürztraminer, all planted 40-plus years ago, done straight. And then we have, which is our flagship, and our, definitely our most popular wine called Peace, which is a Chardonnay, Riesling, Gewürztraminer blend, all done semi-sweet together, fermented together. There's no blending involved except at Crush. And that line finalizes our white line. Yeah. And then the Pinots, we have the two different blocks with the Dijon 115 and the Pomard, and they're bottled separately, then blended 50-50 every year for our Reserve Cuvée. 
And as much as I love my estate grown and Casey loves our estate grown, we couldn't live on Pinot alone in our wine cellar. So we traveled up into the Yakima and Walla Walla valleys and made relationships with some vineyard owners up there to introduce our big red line up in 2007. And we have our legacy label, which is hers personally. And she'll tell me what she wants in that. And then she patiently waits for it to finally make it to the bottle. I'd like a Tempranillo, a Sangiovese. A Syrah. A Syrah. And then has to wait as we find the fruit, put it in the barrel, two to three years in the barrel. And then it's finally in the bottle. She's like, oh, yeah, I remember asking for this. She's a patient woman. <laughs> she knows what she I wants. I have to be. <laughs> yes. So we came up with the, the Big Red because I always wanted my name on a bottle, my, my nickname. Well, and which is what? Big Red. Oh, okay. Well, okay. And I was looking for something a little bit more creative, but that makes sense. And you, it, at <laughs> wine festivals in the tasting room, people would always come up and ask, do you have a Big Red? Do you have a Big Red? So eventually it was like, dang it. Yes. Do we you just have a point big red. at him? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we, got, we had the Big Red and introduced the Heritage, which is always our large red blend. And we had the Legacy. So everything kind of had to tie into the namaste theme. So we were honoring the past, the present, and our future, our legacy, our heritage, and the present with the big red. And then we were sitting around eating a very nice filet mignon, and we wanted to bring... The cab. We wanted a cab in our lineup, and we wanted a Cabernet Sauvignon to stay in our lineup. And before we took the 100-year-old barn, I had another idea on how I wanted to do the tasting room, which is why they strong-armed me at Thanksgiving. And it involved a wine cave. I always wanted a wine cave on the property. Well, with Casey and Dave, we did the cave classic. The C-A-V-E. So C-A-V-E. So Casey and Dave, the cave classic. So it's both of us. And that's our Cabernet Sauvignon. So when you walk in, there's 12 to 14 wines on average for you to roll through. It's pretty awesome. To choose from. Yeah. Yep. That's well, awesome. And Daisy just didn't sound right for a wine. No, Daisy didn't make sense. No. <laughs> it doesn't have quite the the roll off the tongue. No. So, okay. So since we didn't get the address for Dave Page's winery, even though it's at the base of Walnut Hill off of um, Dayton Lafayette Highway, I don't even know what number that is. Anyways, Hopewell Highway. Let's find out exactly where Namaste, where Dave and Casey's winery is, so people can come find the really cool barn and to drink through all the wine. Well, we've got namastevineyards.com. We've got the Facebook page. At Namaste Vineyards. At Namaste Vineyards. We've same got with the, Instagram, at Namaste Vineyards. Um, and those have picked up very much show because of, of my lovely wife. And it's at 5600 Vanwell Road, Dallas, Oregon. And the simplest way is when you're going on Highway 22 from Salem out to the coast or the casinos, the blue sign is just past Dallas, and we're just two miles down the Vanwell Road to the beautiful barn. Yes, and you just painted it. Yes, so yes. It's, it's and now I'll start on the landscaping outside, but that doesn't change the wines. The wines are still inside. That's <laughs> until you walk them outside on the big deck. Yes. Yes. Well, big deck energy. Yes. Ladies well, really like to discuss my big deck. Yes. Well, thank you both so very much for being part of our crazy little show and 
coming all the way from Dallas. Thank you so much for having us. Yes. It's been a blast. Every time I've hung out with you guys, which is now twice, um, <laughs> has been a freaking I'm still cake. scared. <laughs> yes, you did fine. You did fine. You did fine. So anyhow, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for being part of the Wine Crush family and journey. Huge thank you, of course, to the birthday boy, Daniel, with South of Autumn Productions, which he will probably cut that out of my whatever, but he can't. And huge thank you to Dustin with Biscuit and Pickles Catering and Shay, as always, for being just a little bit of everything. So make sure and share this with all your wine-loving and non-wine-loving people because we're entertaining. And uh, like and subscribe to everything that we're doing. So peace out, everybody, and cheers. Go have another glass peace of wine. Peace out. Peace out. I love that. <laughs> someone in there so that'd be that'd be you'd be sharing why do i have such a handle on who's in the bathroom i don't know i don't know you should be issued it's a very loud door wd-40 is sold at every hardware store on the planet i know i need a can of wd-40 at my house my husband